10 years ago, I had the opportunity to see an interesting book. It was called Why We Buy, The Science of Shopping. As I picked it up, I learned about some of the fundamentals for what we now think of as category management through the story of someone who would literally go into store by store and observe what people do and then make um, pretty interesting recommendations for those retailers. Today, we have an opportunity to talk to the author of that book. And through this interview, we'll have the chance to hear about why it's so important to be close to the consumer as we hear about the story of a very successful furniture store in Texas. We'll hear about um, up and coming trends for food and beverage, including implications for supply chain and agriculture. We'll also talk about and hear about a personal story from Paco as he talks about his personal challenge to overcome stuttering and turn it into a strength. This is Digging for Insights, the marketing research podcast for insights professionals and businesses looking to deeply understand their customers so they can grow. I'm Stephen Griffiths, a Fortune 500 corporate researcher. Join me as we talk with experts about inspiring case studies, career advice, and research methods that will lead to growth. Paco Underhill is the author of multiple global best-selling books, including Why We Buy, The Science of Shopping, published in 28 languages and used in design schools and MBA programs around the world. Founder and former CEO of Envirocell, a behavioral research and consulting firm, Paco has helped as the firm has done multiple projects in 47 countries whose clients include 23 of the Fortune 50. He has spent the past 40 years as an inventor of tools in order to understand human behavior and predict the future. Paco, welcome to the podcast. I am honored to be hanging with you, Mr. Griffith. <laughs> Glad that you could join us today. You know, it's funny, when I first joined Nielsen about 10 years ago, they had your book sitting on the bookshelf in the company offices. And I was often, you know, peruse a couple chapters and I found it super interesting. And so it's super exciting to be able to talk with you in person today. You know, I had no idea that... Um, most business books sell for about 10 minutes and then they languish. That book has sold somewhere between 50 and 100,000 copies a year for the past 20 years. That's very impressive. And I'm curious. So I, I reread it again in preparation for this conversation and some very like classic good observations in terms of how do you carefully observe consumer behavior and how that translates into the physical shopping experience. And for those who maybe haven't heard it, who are listening today, I highly recommend it. It's one of those classic books about retail shopping. I, I am curious though, the book focuses a lot on retail and physical stores. How has EnviroCell and your practice evolved with the times as people shop more online? Our our largest clients are the world's global technology firms. Interesting. And that is um, recognizing that there is no line between the physical and cyber world anymore. That whether we're, we have our phones out and we're in the store or the struggle that many of the online merchants have of looking at the difference between how does somebody shop online on their phone versus their tablet versus their home computer. Gotcha. So if you're working with, you know, more online shopping experiences, how do your services differ? Because I mean, according to the book, most of it is done in store. So I'm curious to what kinds of work you're doing well, now. We, we have a very, uh, a very neat product called a web along, which is where we recruit select uh, customers based on uh, profiles they load our software onto their phones or their tablets, and we can watch and talk to them as they shop online. 
one of the classic issues of of cyber research is that most of it is based on clickstream. And you and I know, having worked in the market research industry, that understanding where you're winning is really nice. But if you want to win victories, you need to understand where you're losing and how you can correct them. And if I took, you know, some of the world's largest technology companies and put a couple of beers in them, I think they would tell you that they got more from 60 webalongs than they do from, you know, tens of thousands of of, uh, clickstream data dumps. Interesting. Um, But it's also understanding something, which is that we have to recognize that the digital needs of somebody in Albany, New York, and the digital needs of somebody in Seattle, Washington, much less Silicon Valley, are very, very different. And that you can be selling the same software, the same phone service, the same hardware, and the mindset and the knowledge set of somebody coming into a location in Dubai versus a location in Shanghai versus much less Wuhan, Singapore, or El Paso, Texas are all different. And that therefore, one of the challenges that we have in our broader cyber world is being able to adjust to where the signal is being logged on from. Doesn't that make sense? That totally makes sense. So how do you feel like the research you do differs in those different areas? I assume you still have sort of a a standard set of questions and exercises that you go through, but how does it differ based on the location of the respondent? Well, obviously here, there were years when I spent 150 nights a year on the road and I would go around the world and I had crews that would travel, you know, uh, for 120 nights a year and they would go to Dubai or Singapore or multiple Chinese cities and, and, and do the work there. One of the things that we know, though, is that if I look at the data sets of 2005 and the data sets of 2020, many of the pieces of information that we were collecting through observation in analog form in 2005 can now be collected digitally in 2020. Gotcha. We also know that one of the skill sets of the 21st century market researcher is a blending of technologies and methodologies. I'm a big believer in mobile eye tracking. I think this is one of the ways that we start to differentiate what do people see versus what people say. It also helps us to understand the difference between how someone sees at 25 and how someone sees at 50, much less 65. So when you're talking about your your webalongs, it sounds like you're combining multiple different data points, correct? So it's not just oh, yeah. the interview itself. I think this is one of the critical issues for us in the broader research community, which is that we can no longer be data collectors. We have to be the modu- mod- modulators. And it is very rare that if you use a survey data, you do some uh AI through video feeds, you do some web along that everything tells you the same thing. There's always going to be conflicting information. And our skill set is being able to somehow modulate and understand what those differences are. And that comes from experience, it comes from insights, and it comes from one of the profound challenges that you and I have, which is we are looking at a better meeting of art and science. 
I totally make sense. And having talked to a lot of people who are looking at data, I think you're exactly right to your earlier point where it's easy to tell findings from data, but you don't always know why. And I think that's the value of WebAlongs and that's the value of consumer insights and market research is providing the why and then the so what and the now what, how do we grow our business because of that insight? I think, you know, one of the things I, I like to tell people is there's a difference between thinking sitting down and thinking standing up. And I am reminded of the times that I've spent working on the board of Israeli technology companies. And one of the things that many of them talk about is that victories are won when generals go to the front lines. Hmm. What do you mean by that? And Well, I mean that one of the classic problems that we have is if you walk into an office and you find the desk farthest away from the front door, that's often where the person in charge sits. Ah. And I think one of the key aspects to management here, I think, you know, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Bezos needs to spend, you know, at least a month, a year, you know, working in a warehouse. To get that empathy, right? Well, part of what it does is it is it helps you understand what the problems are and it helps you understand what the empathies are. But it also is a demonstration of leadership. I think in the world of retail, that that spending some time on the floor uh, is a is a critical issue. Have you ever been to Gallery Furniture in um, Houston? I, I can't say I have. Tell me more about it. Uh, Gal- Gallery Gallery Furniture is one of the most successful independent furniture stores in the country, and the CEO has a desk right at the front door. And um, what it means is that he has some direct contact with his customers and. That direct contact is translates back into leadership issues. It it translates back into to uh, the ability to process. That makes sense. Wow, interesting. And so basically, what you're saying is how that furniture store is successful because they were really in touch with their their customers and their consumers. Yeah, they are. And I I think that's what's challenging for bigger companies, right? If you're a global firm, you can't have your your desk next to everyone. And so how do you get that kind of intel without being everywhere at once, right? I think one of the key issues for senior for senior management, whether they're running a global firm or they're running a, just a, a an independent furniture store in, in uh, Houston, is that you have to spend a certain portion of your time out where your product, your customers, your staff are, are meeting. And uh, that's that's adding a, what I call thinking standing up to thinking sitting, sitting down. Oh, I love that analogy. Yeah, I feel like that's one of the reasons why consumer insights in general, I think, is growing in a lot of places, right? How do you get... So I've heard examples of CEOs and who will literally connect with consumers. Maybe it's like a Zoom call with target customers or consumers, and they do those regularly. And it isn't part of their necessarily required work to do, but it gives them that empathy and the real understanding of what are the big problems people are trying to solve? Why are right. people buying my products? And that kind of intelligence allows you to make better decisions at the top. Well, you know, one of the products that I sell personally here is what we call store clinics, where somebody hires me to basically either arrange a tour of stores or to give them a tour of their own store. And it's a it's a it's a wonderful exercise often of, you know, standing in a parking lot here and going, this is where the shopping experience starts. It doesn't start when you cross over the threshold. It starts here. And what do you see in the parking lot? How could we do this better? And then walking them step by step through it. And it's just a way of 
what I think of is just adjusting the prescriptions through which someone sees their own business. And it's fun. I've done it in New York. I've done it in Tokyo. I've done it in Shanghai. I've done it in London. I've done it in Paris. I've done it in Dubai. It's, it's, it's fun. Do you feel like there's really big differences in those different cultures for how people shop, given those experiences you've had? Well, first of all, one of the things about the book, Why We Buy the Science of Shopping, is that what I tried there is to describe what I call the biological constants, okay? And those are, you know, thanks to basic ergonometrics, you know, some of us may be six foot four, some of us may be five foot two, but the basic measurements between our eyes and our hands fall within a certain range. Right. We know that 90% of us are right-handed. We know that our that our eyes age in a certain way. We know that we tend to shop or move in prescribed clusters of we're either all alone, we're with a friend, we're with a mate, we're with a family, we're with a nuclear group. I mean, those are all the biological constants. Okay, Makes sense. There are a bunch of stuff that's changing because both you and I know that what made a good store or a good website in 2000 or 2010 and what makes a good one today are different. And there are a series of, of just ongoing issues that have been, I think, accelerated in a post-pandemic world that were already, you know, present, you know, a year ago or five years ago. So I know that you are coming out with a new book next year, uh, The Future of um, Eating and Drinking. Um, do you want to talk to us a little bit of what some of those key trends are? I know you talked about some societal shifts that are going on. Oh, you know, we have we have worked with the grocery industry on six continents. We have worked with the large consumer goods manu manufacturers all 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 over the world. So uh, we've worked with much of the major players in the uh, adult beverage community. But let's let's look at a couple of real issues. First of all, there is a conflict between global and local, and that if technology in the 20th century let big food get bigger. Technology in the 21st century is letting small food get better, faster, and cheaper. And that if you recognize that one of the competitors to General Foods, General Mills, whatever, is the orchard person making granola and selling it in the, in the local uh, farmer's, far, farmer's market. And that the uh, ability of the small food producer to do some localized processing that takes from being a potato farmer to being a producer of artisanal vodka, for example. You can go to the Union Square Farmer's Market and in New York City and buy local honey, local granola, local booze, uh, local kimchi. And it's a remarkable transition. We also know that industrialized farming is going through a major shift. And that if I take a typical American grocery store and I look at the parking lot or the roof of it, I could put in hydroponic gardens that produced a third of the vegetables that were sold in that grocery store where people could buy something that wasn't two weeks old, but something that was harvested within the past 12 hours. And that that produce is organic, it is, um, it is healthier for us, and it is right there. We have a fundamental challenge with our supply chain, and that has got to shift. 
We also know that there's there are some fundamental issues in particularly uh, American lifestyle choices, which is that if I live in a city um, and I'm under age 30, I may not be in love with my kitchen because I compete with roommates to be able to do it. Whereas if I'm where if I have kids and I'm living in uh, uh, Portland, Oregon, I am madly absorbing uh, recipes and foods and whatever that I'm seeing online, and I'm enjoying being my own engine. And the the variety of foods that we are interested in and knowledgeable about are just breathtaking. Yeah, they really are. And so just to break those down a little bit, it sounds like um, your first take is that maybe for the first time in a long time, the manufacturing of uh, you know foods, uh, beverages, um, little players are able to make a much bigger impact than before because of the changes that you've mentioned, easier to raise capital and manufacture and things like that. Yeah. The the second trend that you mentioned, explain that a little bit more uh, of changing the supply chain. So you gave the example of you know vegetables that could be grown on a the roof of a store that could then be sold like in the grocery store. Is your point there that um, like we need to break down supply chains so that things aren't just grown in one place and transported, they need to be more diversified? Or what do you mean by that? I mean, one of the ironies here, for example, is if I walk into my local stop and shop, I can look at fresh Brussels sprouts, okay? And those Brussels sprouts are at least 10 days old. Right. Because they were picked in a farm in California. They were sent to a distribution center in Omaha, Nebraska. From there, they went to a distribution center somewhere here in Connecticut, and then they were loaded onto the floor. Do you know where the freshest Brussels sprouts are in the context of our modern grocery store? In the frozen food aisle. Interesting. Not because they were, because it was frozen right after they were picked. Is that your idea? That's right. Exactly. Interesting. And the ability that we have to um, take a shipping container and translate that into a five-acre farm. Have you seen some of those? I have not. I'm curious. There is a, there's, a, there's a wonderful entrepreneur in Brooklyn who has built all of these things and is training a 21st century generation of young farmers who are focused on hydra, hy, hydroponics. Have you ever been to the K-11 uh, shopping mall in Shanghai? I can't say that I have. The K-11 shopping mall has hydroponic gardens in the concourse of the shopping mall. And much of the vegetables that you eat in the restaurants are grown literally 50 meters from where you're sitting down and eating. What if in our modern supermarket, we could both grow and cook in the same location? That is, that's a, you know, that's a venture that we're going to start seeing in, you know, urban farming. Uh, probably there are examples of it under construction right now in Atlanta. Wow. I didn't realize how advanced that is. Um, there's a, there's a wonderful firm uh, in the Midwest called 80 Farms, and I would urge people to go look it up. One of my good buddies uh, just uh, was the plant geneticist at Walmart has just shifted gears and is now there. And that's, that's part of what they're doing here is, is, is there that the farmer of the 1950s had more in common with his Chaldean ancestors of 5,000 years earlier than he's going to have with a farmer of 2030. Yeah, just totally turning everything on its head. I wonder too, if the evolution that you're talking about, um, We'll also see a lot of uh, fracturing within the economy. 
I imagine that the cost of growing something hydrophonically uh, close by is probably higher than if it's a, a large field where things can be mass produced a little easier. And so I wonder if you're going to start to see, um, you know, that maybe I imagine there will always be a need for something that's maybe lower cost. And I wonder if that'll be something to be looking at as well. I know. I think that's very true. On the other hand, I can say the cost of producing a solar panel has dropped drastically over the past 20, 20, 20 years. Can't we expect at least some some progress totally there too? I agree. I think we'll see a lot. Of- okay. And, you know, I can look at the, you know, the miles per gallon on my car and I'm going, you know, uh, that's made improvements too. I, I, let's, let's look at the, you know, when I first took my first computer science course, you know, I had to walk into a room that was filled with machinery and cables underneath the floor and, you know, mag card readers and stuff like that. And look at what we do now. Totally. I mean, the amount of rate of change is just amazing. Thank you for sharing those thoughts. Definitely a lot to think about and ponder there. You know, before we wrap up, I am curious, as I was looking in your background, um, and as we talked before this call, you mentioned that you grew up overseas since your father was an American diplomat. I'm curious, how did growing up outside the United States in different places influence some of your career choices and how you look at the world? Well, uh, I also grew up with a terrible stutter. Oh, really? And um, therefore, much of my processing of each new place that we lived in had to be done through my eyes. And more than one person had pointed out that I took a coping mechanism to a handicap and turned it into a profession. I could definitely say that. Uh, Not everyone who says they've had issues with um, stuttering before tends to be a public speaker. I think you've been a keynote speaker in 50 different countries, as I recall. Well, you know, there was a very magic moment in my 30s when I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, I don't care anymore that my speech cadence is a little different. And the fact that I'm a big guy and that I can stand up in front of an audience and they occasionally will see me struggle. I think that adds to the humanness of the material that I'm delivering. And I've had more than one person come up to me afterwards with tears in their eyes going, thank you for giving me the courage. I'm curious, do you find it's better to be upfront about the challenges you've had with stuttering? Does that help? Or do you usually not speak about it and people just pick up on it naturally? Well, my stuttering is a lot better now than <laughs> it was when I was seven years old. Um, but, you know, both both you and I were were foreign service brats. So you too grew up offshore. I think the degree to which we recognize that some things can be different and being able to understand that there are often conflicting truths in terms of how people process something has been a very important con- contributor to uh, processing skills. And I I think that's probably true for both of us, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. I I think one of the biggest things for me is I grew up in, in Asia and my dad um, was an American diplomat as well, as you mentioned. One of the biggest things for me was just recognizing how much of our worldview is colored by the culture in which we live. And recognizing that the culture isn't the same everywhere, I think is really helpful. Yep. And then I think the on the opposite side of that is realizing that people, it's very often to people who you don't see, you don't talk to, you think are way different than you. But the more you just talk to them or experience their life a little bit, the more you realize, wow, the ultimate you know, part of what it is to be human 
really very similar. And so I think on the other side, too often in politics or in other situations, we over-dramatize the differences between people and cultures to an unhealthy extent in some cases. Well, good. Well, thank you so much, Paco. My guest today has been Paco Underhill, and thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And that concludes my interview with Paco Underhill. I really enjoyed that conversation, and there were three things that stuck out to me. First, I love the story of that furniture store, where rather than sit in the back of the store or in some office where no one could see him, the manager of that furniture store was right by the front door so that he could see what was going on, firsthand understand the types of consumers that were coming through those doors, and better react and make store decisions that allowed them to be more successful. I think for us, that's a challenge. How do we ensure that we and the key decision makers in our businesses are well aware and close to the consumers that they're serving? I know some folks uh, schedule uh, Zoom interviews and other conversations with key consumers to understand where they're coming from, but maybe little changes like stopping in the retail store or shopping your own website online can help give us the empathy to really understand why people are buying our products and services in the first place. The second takeaway for me is how important it is as researchers and marketers to have global and diverse experiences. So often, if we're embedded into a single culture the entire time, we don't don't recognize the different variances there are in the world. And by understanding that there's different cultures, that there's different countries that do things very different than we do today, it allows us to see how things could be done better in the future or the kinds of problems that we could solve that maybe we aren't even aware of right now. Third, I'd say there's an opportunity for all of us to keep focused on trends. It's very easy to focus on just the project work that's right in front of us, but really the most value that we can add is by connecting our project work to other things that are happening in the market. I know some of the best agency presentations I've seen are when they take inspiration from news articles, from things happening abroad, from things happening locally, and tying that into their research findings. And that gives me more confidence that their findings are correct, and it helps me get a broader sense of what's actually going on. Again, my encouragement is to please leave a review uh, in your podcast app if you have an opportunity so that other folks can find this podcast. Also, please visit diggingforinsights.com so you can find the show notes of this episode. Until next time, I'm wishing you the best as you dig for insights that will grow your career and your business.